talking um, the last six weeks um, through the book of Joshua, and I've enjoyed this study. I love the book of Joshua. It's one of my favorites for lots of reasons, but um, as we've journeyed through the first six uh, chapters of the book of Joshua, we have been talking about this theme of courageous faith, right? And our whole big umbrella of, of this year, from my preaching perspective, is, is just how do we grow, just spiritually, how do we grow in our walk with God? And so we began with prayer and just asking you to consider, man, what does Jesus want you to be praying about? And I hope it's, it's on the back of your sermon if you forgot that. So what does Jesus want to be praying about? I hope that you're, you're still doing that. You're, you're growing in your, in your attitude of prayer and your practice of prayer and praying the things that God wants us to pray for. And that leads into, well, if I'm going to pray for things, um, most likely I'm going to be encouraged to follow through and do them. And so we follow Joshua. And we, these first six weeks have kind of all about, been about going out and taking the next hill, right? What's the next challenge that God has for us in Joshua? Where, where's God leading his people? It's kind of all out there, right? How do we cross this river? Or how do I fill this leadership role? Or, or, or how do I get into God's people kind of thing with Rahab? And, and we've seen that look of it. And we're going to finish this today before we're in the next few weeks. We kind of just talk about uh, joyful generosity. Uh, but I want to finish this today by, by looking differently at courage. Because, again, we tend to think of courage as a, well, I needed to go do something out there. But I think there's an aspect of courage that is very much inward focused. That is very much the courage to look within yourself and say, this is not right, or this is not good, or this is not the best it can be, and to have the courage to look inside and say, I'm going to change, I'm going to be different, or, or I'm going to repent, or, or I'm going to follow God in this area. And, and I think that it takes a courage to do that, that oftentimes it's maybe easier to look out there and say, well, I'm going to go do that thing out there, when most of our biggest battles in life, they tend to happen inside, right? It's character. It's becoming the person God wants you to be. It's, it's a difficult process of becoming. And so as we read this chapter today, the text naturally goes there because we've been looking at victory after victory after victory as we've read through the book of Joshua. And yet we come to Joshua chapter 7 and all of a sudden we're going to find defeat, we're going to find loss, we're going to find sin, and we're going to find the inner struggle to say, okay, this isn't going well, what do I do now? And that's where Joshua finds himself. And so we are going to talk today about how humility and repentance requires courage uh, to, to, to be uh, humble, to be repentant, to follow God in that path of, of really where he wants you to be. And so we're going to read through Joshua chapter 7. And as we do so, we're going to kind of, again, walk our way through the chapter, make a few notes, and then we'll come back and, and we're going to walk our way backwards from the bottom of this text to the top of it, making some observations, I think, just about how courage helps us to be, um, to be inside all that we can be for God as we deal with failure, as we deal with sin, as we deal with regret, all of those things that oftentimes uh, hold us back, okay? So Joshua chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, says this, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Now pause there a second. Um, last week we talked about those devoted, devoted things, um, and what we're going to find is that today, in chapter 7, Achan, son of Carmi, took some of them, took, took some of the devoted things. And so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And so what's he upset about? What's, what's going on here? If you remember last week, let me show you the verses we looked at in chapter 6, where God said when he gave them the very first city that they were going to conquer in the promised land of Jericho, he said, look, this is the first city, and it is mine. That whole thing that Charlie talked about, offering, this first thing is mine. Every 
everything else is yours. It's yours to enjoy, live it out, and make the most of it. But don't touch this. This is mine. And this is what he said in chapter 6, verse 17. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. And so again, this city is, what does he mean by that? Well, keep away, verse 18, keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Again, God is very serious about this in his instructions to them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver, all the gold, all the articles of bronze, iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So those things are, have a special purpose. They are for God, to honor God, to worship God with. Okay? And so that's when verse 1 talks about the devoted things. That's what he's talking about. And so our text continues that, that you've got this problem that Achan was in the city of Jericho, took some of those devoted things for himself. And so that causes trouble as you keep reading. Verse 2 says this, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which was near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Now Ai wasn't the huge fortified city like Jericho was, because they say when they return, not all the army will even have to go up against Ai. Send two, three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So it's a small place, but it's a strategic place. Um, if you look at a map of the conquest of, of the promised land, they start with Jericho over here in the middle of the promised land, and they move to Ai, which is kind of a, right on a main, the main road that went north to south in the promised land. So if you take Ai, you hold that road, and no one's going north and south. And so you've got a prime position to attack from the, to the south and to the north, and that's exactly what they will do as you keep reading in this text. And so uh, verse 4 says, So about 3,000 men went up, but they were not victorious, they were routed. They were beaten soundly uh, by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. So again, put yourself in Joshua's situation. It's been victory after victory after victory to this point. Not easy victories, but victories. And all of a sudden, you send a small band of people to take a small place, and 36 of your men are lost. And so that automatically puts Joshua into a difficult place. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So I just want you to think with me about what does failure feel like? What does sin feel like? It, it tends to create a timid, timidity of the soul, a, a, a timidity of the heart. In fact, we've seen these exact words in this text twice already. In Joshua chapter 1, it was the people, excuse me, chapter, chapter 2, it was the people of, the Canaan, of Canaan that were fearful, uh, their hearts melted in fear over the Israelite army coming. And as you look at chapter 5, a couple of weeks ago, it was the kings in that context that were afraid of the Israelites. But now the Israelites have failed. They've gotten beat. Uh, there's not this momentum all of a sudden. and Everything comes to a screeching halt. And so how do they feel? What does fear do to you? Fear creates uncertainty. It creates doubt. It creates uh, questions in your mind. And so now it's the Israelites who are melting in fear because of, and their hearts are like water. So there's this fear about them that they now have. And so word gets back to Joshua in verse 6. And Joshua does this. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Again, that's before God's presence in their people is what that represents. And he remained there till evening. 
And the elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. Just a parenthetical note, if you're a Mizzou fan, this might be what you want to do all afternoon, right? Just tear your clothes, ashes on your head, and just, just mourn all day long, okay? It's just sad, okay? And so, um, that's a parenthetical thought. Some of you don't care about that. Um, and so, but... Here's Joshua, though, right? What's Joshua, the leader, right? He's got them into this position. He's got them to this place. And all of a sudden, what has been victory by doing what God said, now all of a sudden is, is defeat. And he's wrestling and he's confused. and He doesn't know what's going on. And he does the right thing, though, doesn't he? Verse 7, he goes and he talks to God. He pours out his confusion, his hurt, his loss to God. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Ammonites to destroy us? In other words, why did you bring us here, God, if, if, if all it's going to be is, is defeats? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. So pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth and what then will you do for your own great name? And so Joshua is being very honest to God, isn't he? He's saying, God, you brought me here and now it seems like it's lost, it's defeat and I don't understand it and here we are and we're not safely over there on the other side of the river where we're protected. We're right in the middle of all these enemies and he feels vulnerable, he feels lost, he feels afraid, he feels confused, maybe even anger at God. But then verse 10, God answers. And that's always helpful when, when he does that. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down here on your face? Um, and it's kind of a, seems like a little harsh, but, but it, it's, it's telling Joshua, look, we're not going to stand here and mope about this. We're going to get up and we're going to fix this. We're going to make this better. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. And so God begins to point out, this is the reason for this failure. This is the reason for it. Verse 12 says, this is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. And so what you find in verse 13, he gives them instructions. Go, consecrate yourselves, consecrate the people. Go back to chapter 5, we talked about that whole consecration process. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies unless you remove them. In the morning, present yourself tribe by tribe, and the tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. And the clan that the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family, and the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. And so he goes through this process that he describes, whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. And so that's exactly what happens. The next few verses is this whole process starts with the whole nation. They go to the tribe of Judah. From Judah, they go to the family of Zerahites. From, the, from there, they go to the family of Zabdi. And ultimately, Ultimately, they get down to Achan, uh, our, our guy we met in verse 1. And, and Achan is this, the guilty culprit. He's accused of it. And then Joshua in verse 19 said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Now, how do you give glory and honor God? Well, in this context, tell me the truth. Be honest. Quit hiding. And he says, tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And so Achan is honest. He said, it's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe 
saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylon or from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. And so he, he, he's honest. He confesses, this is what, what I did. And so Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent. And there it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, this is where it kind of takes a sad note, right? But again, this isn't just some guy who happened to pick up a candy bar walking out of the gas station. This is a guy whose disobedience has cost 36 families, their, their husbands, their wives, right? This is a serious offense in Israel. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons, daughters, cattle, donkeys, sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. That's kind of one of those passages you read it and say, wow, like, what do I do with that, right? That certainly isn't a, one of those passages where we're going to... Should we practice public stoning now? Is that, should that make a comeback? That's not where this is going, all right? This is old, old, old history. Uh, certainly New Covenant is very different than Old Covenant um, behavior and language and actions. Um, but I think there are principles at work here about the courage to address things inside of us that um, Achan came to a place of, Joshua came to appreciate, and I think God was at work. And so what I want to do is just rewind what we just read, and I just want to walk back through and just very quickly identify a few things that, that I think as you look back to the story, three of them about Achan, one about Joshua, and one about God, and just show us, man, this is, this is where and why the courage to look within, the courage to look in the mirror daily, regularly, and say, God, search me, examine me, show me where, uh, show me where I'm being an Achan. Uh, show me where my duplicity is. Show me where that is. The courage to do that and why it's, why it's a good thing. The first thing I want you to see is simply this, that Achan's story is a serious warning about sin, its curse, and its consequences. I just thought, as I read through that chapter and thought, well, should I just skip this chapter and go to something happier? There are happier stories in the book of Joshua. We can look at other places where there's victory, where there's a lot of good things happening. But I thought, this is a good place to end, not because of the tone of it, but because of the, of the message of it. And we live in a world where we don't think about sin, we don't talk about sin. It's everybody is out for their own good, what they want to do. And yet the Bible over and over, over and over reminds us, points us to these pictures that just remind us that from God's perspective, sin is serious, sin hurts, sin brings consequences, it brings fruit with it. And while we don't like to use the word sin, all of us look around within, we look around us, look at what happened yesterday in Pittsburgh, just all the things, there's brokenness inside the human heart. And that's sin, it's everywhere, in us, around us. And oftentimes we, we like to minimize it, but, but the Bible won't let us do that. And every once in a while, the Bible will bring us to a place where we are just kind of confronted with the seriousness, with the holiness, with the, whoa, this is different. This isn't just like a nice text you read through and stop and go to the next thing. It's like, man, this is serious. This was a serious consequence. God took this very seriously. Man, maybe I should sit up and take notice of this. There's a video I saw a couple days ago that um, I... My wife is gone for the weekend, so I can show videos like this, so don't tell her, okay? But this, is, this video on YouTube is entitled, Never Wake Your Wife While She Is Sleeping, okay? So just go ahead and play that if you would, please. You're so 
All right, all the husbands in the room, can I have an amen? All right, very good. No, don't say it. Your wife's sitting next to you. But, but I can't wait for my wife to get home, and as a family, we're going to watch that video. It'll be great. It'll be wonderful. She will love me for that. So, um, but that's the picture, right? That, that guy is just minding his own business, thinking, hey, I'll just go down and talk to the other, to other tiger here. Maybe, I don't know what he had intentions of. But uh, he's just going to go talk to her, and not today, right? not right now, right? not going to happen. So, um, and so, again, the, the, how awake he became all of a sudden, all right, that's the only reason I share that, is just the awakeness, he's woke, is that the cool term, right, he's woke, he's woke, woke, I don't know, anyway, um, <laughs> he's lit, I don't know what that means, I don't know, there you go, that's just what the kids say, right, I don't know, I should quit, but again, just the awokeness, right, that all of a sudden, their, the mind is brought to alertness when it was maybe a little uh, lethargic, a little laid back. And sometimes we can get that way with God, right? We, we tend to take God lightly, take God, ah, God is God and he's my friend. And, and yes, he is. Those things are very, very true. But man, every, time you come to, every once in a while you come to a place like this and just the awesomeness, the holiness, the otherness of God, every once in a while we just need that jolt to our system to remind ourselves that I'm not dealing with someone like me. I am dealing with someone like God. And there is no one like him. And so again, I think it is a healthy thing for us sometimes to be awakened, 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 awakened to the reality of who God is and his nature of his holiness and his otherness. And that's exactly what God is doing for his people. And it does it other places, right? Um, get to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, things are cruising along nicely. The church is growing and, and they lie to the church. They lie to God and man, they don't just get a slap on the wrist, they're dead. And all of a sudden it says that fear the fear of the Lord broke out and said, oh man, God is not someone to be dealt with um, lightly. God should be taken seriously. And so while God's other attributes are real and good and we should love them and treasure them, we should never forget the otherness of God. Achan did that. And that leads us to the second thing of why he did that. Uh, I think it's this, that Achan wanted the wrong things. He was, here's my pun of the day. He was aching for the wrong things, okay? Get it? Okay, we're good. All right. I was going to do a bacon reference, but I thought we'll go with aching as aching for the wrong things. And so aching wants the wrong stuff, right? What does he want most? Does he want to obey God and do what God says? Or does he want a pretty robe, gold and silver? And if you read his confession again, you think about what he did, um, he says, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels, I coveted them and I took them, right? Again, he knew the instructions. Every soldier who went into that city knew, leave it. This is God's. Leave it alone. But what does he do? He saw it. I want that more than I want to do what God said. And that's really so much of where coveting and, and our desires and what do we want out of life, we have to wrestle with those. And sometimes it takes great courage to admit, God, I don't want to obey you. I want to do what I want to do. And, and that's a healthy place to sometimes come to and say, you know what, God, the, the heart of my struggle in following you as a disciple is that I just don't want to do it your way. I don't want to follow. I want you to follow me and I want you to bless the things that I'm doing instead of me following you and me trying to bless you with my life. And so it's simply a matter of desire, but have the courage to be honest with yourself. And, and Achan comes to that place, but unfortunately Achan comes to that place way too late and the consequences are already set in motion. But he does come to that place to his, to his, um, to his praise. Number three is this, Achan's one sin had great effect on the whole. 
I just think you can't escape that, right? The Bible is written in an Eastern culture, and Eastern cultures are not like we are here in the West, where we are all little individual units, right? Where I can do what I want to do inside my bubble, and it doesn't affect anybody in my mind, and it's not hurting anybody, it has no influence. We pretend that there aren't ripple effects for what I do to the rest of the world around me. But Hebrew culture, Eastern cultures are very different. What, what happens to one, what one does affects the whole community. And you find that in the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis, Adam and Eve, they sin. What happens to the rest of humanity? We reap the consequences of that. That continues on into the New Testament. Jesus, he dies, is resurrected. And, and what's the promise? For everybody. Everybody can reap the good of the one. Um, and so I just think it's a wise person, a courageous person, who is willing to look in the mirror and just simply ask on a regular basis, how are my decisions not only affecting me, but how do they affect my witness, my relationship with God? How do my decisions affect my family? How do my decisions affect my church? How do my decisions affect my community? How do my decisions affect, what are the ripple effects of what I'm deciding to do with my life? How are they affecting? Is it positive? Is it negative? Um, am I, just being mindful that what I do, what you do, has an effect on the, the group of people that are around you. And the closer they are to you, the more it has an impact on them. Number four, we switch over to Joshua. Joshua's worshipful and contrite posture shows us the way we should be. Again, we all come to face-to-face -face with, with failure, with sin, with guilt. And I didn't highlight it when I read the text. I should have. But did you notice when Joshua was pleading with God, he says, man, God, you've brought us here to die, right? You've brought us here. And what does failure, what does guilt do? It just becomes a great big thing in your life. And it just becomes bigger than it really is. And all of a sudden, that fear uh, just kind of tense everything else that you do. And, and so you feel alone, you feel abandoned, all those kind of things, that it gets big. And, and so I love what Joshua does, though. Joshua is alone. He feels scared. He feels hurt. He feels betrayed by God. And, and so what does he do? He assumes this worshipful, worshipful, contrite position before God. And he begins to tell God about it. And I think so oftentimes we fail or we sin, and maybe it's the wound, maybe it's the, the unwillingness to say, I don't want to look at why, that, why I failed. I don't want to look at why I feel guilty. I don't want to look at why it didn't go the way I wanted it to, because that requires change, that requires self-examination, and that takes courage. But Joshua was courageous enough to say, God, I don't know why this has happened, but I'm going to cast myself before you, and I want you to show me. I want you to help me see what's at work here, because I, this can't continue, right? I need you in my life. And so I think his posture is a wonderful place that when we fail, when we struggle with guilt, when we sin, man, don't run away. Don't run to the shadows. Come into the light where he is faithful and just and righteous and, and faithful to forgive us of our sins. Number five, finally, is this, that God always provides a way back. That God always provides a way back. And this is the cool part of this story. Now, what, it, even in a harsh way, what seems harsh to us, God is leading his people back to being right with him. Right? What, was, what was the cause? You have devoted goods in your camp. Fix it. Cleanse it. Cleanse the camp of it. And you're going to be fine. And it even says that in verse 26. If you can go back to verse 26, I, mean, I skipped it earlier. If you can find that, the last verse there in that text. Um, it it kind of highlights this idea, there it is, um, that they heaped up a large pile. And, and the idea of this is important. And I think it's, it's the redeeming part of this story. That yes, this is ugly. Yes, this seems harsh. But what is God doing? 
I want my people to be right with me. And in order for you to be right with me, there needs to be this cleansing. There needs to be this, this ridding of that which is tainting you. And that's true in our life. That's true in our community. Um, and so God is always at work to do that. And so God always provides a way back. But the thing that I love, after they made this mound over Achan's body, it was a, a memorial. This is the second time they've built stones, right? If you remember back in Genesis, or Genesis Joshua, uh, 3, 4, 5 in there, when they finally got the cross... The sea, the red, not the red sea, that's a different story. The river, the Jordan River, what did God have them do? Build a, build a heap of stones. And so that anybody who walks by here will ask the question, what happened here? God is powerful and God is awesome. And God split the river so we can walk through. And here's the memorial. Well, what did he do with this? Hey, there's this day that we took God's devoted things and it went really bad for us. And here's the evidence. This man's life ended his, his existence is done because God is holy and God is awesome and God is not to be disobeyed. And so we should walk faithfully with God. And so there are two mounds so far in the book of Joshua that represent God's nature and God's character. And so if you go back to that one more time, the end of that verse said that that valley was called the Valley of Achor, which means trouble. So whenever you walk in the, I'm going to the Valley of Trouble, right? It was not a positive place. It was a reminder of defeat. It was a reminder of, of, uh, of loss, of sin, of guilt. It was a reminder of how things didn't go right, okay? We build memorials for that sometimes too. The reminder there was a really bad day in our history, and this marks it. But I love what the book of Hosea does, uh, chapter 2. If you know the little prophet Hosea, many, many, many centuries later, Hosea is this prophet who... Is talking about the unfaithfulness of Israel, and he uses an unfaithful woman to do it. But I love what he writes in the midst of how God is talking about the hope that he's going to bring his people Israel back, and he's going to love them, and he's going to bless them, and walk in relationship with them. He says, there I will give her back her vineyards, speaking of his people, and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And I love that, that God is going to take a place that at one point was marked for defeat, was one point marked, as a, remembered as a place of loss, of grief, of sin. But now God says, this is going to be a place of hope. And so the good thing about this whole process, that when you have the courage to look within, the courage to ask God to help you look within and say, God, search me, try me, look inside me, show me the places where I'm broken Show me the places where there's uh, evil. Show me the places where things are not as they ought to be. When that happens, what you begin to see is that God takes dark, broken valleys and he begins to redeem them and he makes them into something that are pathways of hope, that, that are places where, man, this was the worst part of my life, but look how God has redeemed it. He has redeemed relationships or he has redeemed something terrible and he is using it for his glory in some way and God redeems something that was once ugly, a sign of defeat. Now it's, it's, it's a sign of his grace and his mercy and his triumph over that ugliness. And so why I hope as we leave this today, we may come back to Joshua in the years to come, months to come, but for now we're going to stop. But I want to leave it here because I think of all the courageous things that we can do, I think the most courageous thing is just to regularly look inside and say, God, search me, show me, try me, help me to see what's going on in here. Because if I get all this okay, there's going to be a lot of really good things that happen out here. And I'm going to find courage within and within God working as you see him work to do a lot of things out here. Uh, but it's got to start with the courage to say, God, open my heart, 
Test me, try me, show me, lead me to where I need to be on the inside. Okay? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this text. It's a text that is uncomfortable in some ways. It's a text that isn't necessarily a fun read, but it's a text that just reminds us of first of your qualities, of your holiness, of your awesomeness. And God, forgive us when we treat you as if you were small. Forgive us when we treat you as if you were like us. Remind us this day that yes, you love us. Yes, you have done incredible things for us through your grace. But you are other. You are worthy of worship. You are God. And so Father, I just pray that you would work in our hearts. We all have places. We all wrestle probably daily with the sense of inadequacy that comes from maybe failure or shame or guilt or sin in our life and, and that creates fear. It creates uncertainty. And so Father, lead us like you did Joshua to a path of clarity. Help us to see and help us to be like him and making ourselves available. God, to open our lives. Show me what's going on. Show me why Maybe my relationships don't work right all the time. Or show me why I've got this trait or this habit. Show me, God. And as you do so, um, courage grows out of that as we see your faithful, loving, grace-filled approach to changing us. So, Father, help us um, to find the inner courage just being loved by you. And so thank you, Father, for uh, this book. Thank you for your word and Thank you for Joshua and his story. And uh, may we continue to push forward in in our own walks of faith as he did and uh, do so with courage. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to stand.